All right. Welcome, everybody, to the very first episode of the adult SLP edition of the Resource Roadmap Show. This is something brand new we're doing here at Therapy Insights. And to borrow a word from Glennon Doyle, we're feeling a little bit skited about it, a little scared and a little excited because it's something we've never done before. We've never seen it done, and we're just making it up as we go along, and we hope that this is useful for all of you listening and watching, and if there's anything that we can do to make it more useful for you, we would love any feedback at any time. You can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com, and if you're subscribed to the Access Pass, you'll have instant access to print any of the resources that we're talking about here today. Um, and if you're not a member, you can go to therapyinsights.com and sign up and you'll get instant access to all the resources we're talking about, as well as hundreds more inside of the library. And we do offer CEU credit for watching or listening to this show. And so to do that, you just have to have the CEU feature included in the access pass. And you can go to our website and go to access pass and then click on CEUs and find this show. It's adult SLP show number one. And you can just answer a couple of questions and you'll get a certificate of completion um, for ASHA CEUs. And I'm your host. My name is Megan Berg. I'm a medical SLP located in Western Montana. I spend a lot of my time running Therapy Insights. And then I also work PRN at a hospital. And right now that's a couple of days a week. And I want to introduce you to our amazing, talented writers that are here with us today, and they're going to be here with us at every show to talk about these resources. Um, so first, we'll start with Stephanie Hennigan. Stephanie is located in Minnesota, and you can see behind her, her beautiful bookshelves. Um, she also runs a bookstagram, which I would not know what that is if I didn't know Steph, and a bookstagram is an Instagram account all about books. So if you love a reading book influencer, yeah, book influencer, definitely want to check her out at Steph's book therapy on Instagram. Um, but Steph, tell us about your SLP world when you're not reading books and talking about them on Instagram. Yeah. So SLP world is my passion first, the books come second. Um, but I work at a level one trauma hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, I do primarily work outpatient um, therapy with adults, so it's usually 16 and older, um, but I do on occasion help out in the hospital as well when it gets busy, so I do acute care and inpatient rehab. Um, primarily, our caseloads are people with strokes or brain injuries, um, people with Parkinson's, um, dementia, primary progressive aphasia, um, we do AAC evaluations. Um, we do have some voice therapists who do voice therapy. So I typically don't do that beyond the Parkinson's. I also am a part of the Parkinson uh, multidisciplinary clinic in our outpatient setting. And I'm a part of the ALS, um, our, our clinic as well. So we have that three times a month. So it is busy, but love, I love it. It keeps me, um, excited about the discipline and helps prevent burnout because you know that's a real thing too it is yeah you get to do lots of different things awesome mm -hmm. thank you and then we also have jennifer ledger who's located in south carolina and so stephanie and i were just commiserating that her weather is forecasted to be in the 80s where ours is forecasted to be in the single digits next week 
Um, but Jennifer has two adorable little dogs and she also has a really great how I became an SLP story, which I feel like I don't have. I, I was working um, in Boulder, Colorado, and I was kind of bored at work one day, and I just looked up grad school programs that were available near me, and that's how I found speech pathology. And at the time, I was working with geologists, and I was an education outreach specialist. And so all of the work I was doing is interesting. Like, I got to travel all around the world and work on all these different research projects all over the place with lots of different people from different countries. But at the end of the day, it was all about rocks and rocks are fascinating. They're more interesting than I would have ever known. Um, not working for geoscientists, but I also wanted to work more with humans. And so that's what brought me to speech pathology. But Jennifer, tell us your story of how you became an SLP and what you do as an SLP. Yes. So um, my dad actually had a stroke when I was in high school. Um, I was a junior at the time, and as a re result of that stroke, he acquired aphasia. And so, you know, my knowledge of speech pathology um, was very limited at the time, and I learned a lot just from him having his stroke and watching him work with SLPs in the hospital and in the outpatient setting. Um, so he is definitely my inspiration and why I became a speech pathologist um, and why I really, you know, enjoy working with that population. Um, I work at also level one, um, trauma hospital in Greenville, South Carolina. I am mainly in, um, the acute inpatient rehabilitation setting, um, and also have transitioned over to our long-term acute care hospital this year as well. And so I'm getting a lot more, um, experience with working with the trach and vent population and just expanding my knowledge with that, um, something that was very limited before, um, this year. And so that's been really exciting. Um, I also run our or lead our aphasia support group in the area, which, you know, as a result of COVID, we had to stop for a little while, but I'm in the process of getting that started back up and we're hoping to start back in April. So really excited about that and, you know, continuing my love with aphasia and that population. Excellent. Thank you. Um, at this time, since we're offering this show for CEUs, we want to verbalize our disclosures. So all of us are being paid by Therapy Insights to run this show, and we are also talking about Therapy Insights products. And so the way that these shows will work is this is something that's been uh, requested for years is for us to provide more context and instruction for how to use the resources that we provide. And so every month, as you guys know, we release new content into the library and members get to vote on what we create next. And so with each episode, we'll be talking about all of the newly released resources um, that we're putting out that month. And then we'll wrap up the show with a case study. And that gives us a chance to talk about different clinical perspectives and ideas of how to approach different cases, as well as resources from the existing library that we would use um, for that case. So we have a great lineup of resources. We're going to be talking about crushing meds, um, determining decision-making capacity, space retrieval, lots of good things. So we're going to go ahead and dive in. And I'm going to share my screen so we can see the resources as we talk about them. And we'll start with this um, first piece, which is medication swallow strategies for people with dysphagia. 
And Stephanie, you wrote this piece, so go ahead and share about this resource. Sounds good. So this one is one that I personally wanted for a long time um, because it's a topic that I talk about with my patients probably daily. Um, but we the votes came in and it won, so we made it. Um, so I usually use this, well, I will be using this handout. It doesn't exist yet. Um, for my patients with Parkinson's, swallowing medications is usually one of the first things I talk about as a sign that they're noticing about swallowing changes. So this could be a good handout for that. It also could be a good handout for people with brain injuries or strokes as well, because you know swallowing is a big concern that we work on as well. So this one was kind of compiled with some discussion from other speech therapists, my experience, some research. Um, so just some basic kind of things that we talk about with our patients, but now it's all in a handout. Um, cause I know a thing we talk about a lot is health literacy and, you know, when the patients are with us in a session, um, they're taking in a lot of information, but they're maybe not capturing all that information long-term. So if we can just give them a handout to kind of help re kind of, um, explain what we talked about that visual memory of the handout can really help as well. Mm -hmm. um, so of course, you know, we talk about taking one pill at a time. Um, one that I found was kind of interesting is really pushing, take your medications with water instead of juice or coffee or anything else, because that could potentially change um, the medication effects. So that was something I thought was interesting. I usually don't talk about uh, lots of water with each medication. Um, maybe starting with the smaller pills first and working your way up to the larger ones, because um, there has been some research that show even healthy adults have trouble swallowing pills. And, you know, you have that, oh my gosh, this is maybe the time it's going to be hard to swallow again. So it's, it's normal for healthy people too. And I think that's also important to just kind of think about. Um, some products that I thought were interesting, um, I hadn't really looked into this, but a pill swallowing cup. So there's a couple different ones on the market where you have a cup and there's like a little spout, you put the medications in the spout, and then you just kind of take both at the same time. So there's not really that delay of putting the pills in and then drinking the water. It's, it's helpful for some people. Another idea is some pill swallowing gel. So it just kind of puts a little bit of an extra coat on the pill to help swallow. Crushing medications, you know, is something we do talk about, but I really stress that this needs to be talked about with the doctor first because crushing medications can change the effectiveness of that medication. Putting a crushed medication in applesauce I don't know, that could also maybe change things. So have that discussion with the doctors first. Um, if a pill isn't able to be crushed, maybe talking about an alternative, maybe a liquid. Um, this is also kind of, it is a big topic I talk about in our ALS clinic as well with patients, especially with that bulbar onset of ALS. That's usually the swallowing and the speech is the first to go. So we do talk about how are we gonna swallow the pills safely? Do you want a feeding tube or not? If if you don't, then we we get creative. Um, but if they do, then we can usually get those medications through the feeding tube. Um, so I'm personally super excited for this handout. 
Um, I wish we had it a long time ago, but you know what? It's out now and it's perfect. So. Yeah. And I like this because even if you're, you have a moment or a session, let's say to talk about medication swallow strategies with a patient, maybe the family isn't present for that, or maybe Mm -hmm. they're experiencing a neurodegenerative disease where things are going to change over time. And so being able to leave this information with them that they can read and maybe, maybe they're going to go home and after reading this a few months down the line, when things are worse and they think to themselves, I'll just go get a pill crusher and crush Mm -hmm. everything. Maybe that will trigger them to call their doctor and Mm -hmm. avoid some of the issues that can come with that. So, yeah. Another thing too, is people try to take those capsules and open them up and just like pour that in, but that really changes the effects of the medication. So there's a reason for that capsule to get to a certain part of the body before that medication is absorbed. So yeah, I think this will be a helpful one for sure. Yeah. And I kind of want to try that aura flow pill swallowing. Yeah. Where it's like you get the water and the pills at the same time. So then you don't have like the psychological <laughs> issue yeah. of like, oh my gosh, like I have the pills in my mouth and now somehow I have to get water in there without mm-hmm. causing. An and issue. I personally, I personally use the chin tuck strategy. I-, I find it really helpful, but um, I don't know. There's there's some opinions on that. People are just like, no, I have to throw my head back. That's the only way. So then we got to talk about protecting that airway and why that's maybe not the safest way to do that. Right. Or if that's what they do and you have access to instrumentals, like give that a shot. Well, you can see what give it a shot. Yeah. I, I do swallow studies on Tuesday afternoon, so we could do it. Cool. All right. Thank you. We'll move on to the second new piece that we've added to the library. This was written by Jennifer and it is the SLP's role in determining patient decision-making capacity. This is such a huge topic and this is such a great resource and Jennifer, I'll tell you, or I'll let you tell us about it now. Yes. So definitely kind of going in a different direction with this resource. So this one was really kind of made more for, um, I feel like the SLP as the audience, Um, And just given, you know, fellow speech language pathologists information on kind of what our role is with patient decision making capacity, Um, kind of the idea came to me to make this resource um, working in, you know, those settings that talked about the acute inpatient rehab, long term acute care hospital, you know, the main screen of our medical record system specifically states patient capacity, you know, are they incapacitated and also gives further information about, you know, their ability to consent. Um, And so, you know, it just kind of got me thinking further about, again, what is an SLP's role in patient decision-making capacity? Because it seems like that would be something that we would be a part of. Um, And what I learned from kind of my research is that really anybody who has knowledge of the case and rapport with the patient can kind of be a driver of, you know, this discussion. And, you know, like I was saying, I felt like our knowledge and work as SLP brings vital information about, um, you know, information that they use to determine if a person has the decision-making capacity, Um, depending on kind of the level of care that you're working in. We often use, you know, in-depth evaluations and treatments of those cognitive and communication impairments um, that, like I said, directly relate to those factors that are considered um, when determining 
if a person has decision-making capacity. So kind of looking at this material here, it talks about those four components and those components are, you know, communicating a choice. Um, does the person have a way to communicate a choice? You know, it doesn't have to be verbally. It could be by writing their choice or it could be by, you know, pointing. Um, there are many different ways that our patients express themselves and just making sure that, you know, that we communicate that with other staff members, that that is their way that they best express themselves and can communicate um, information. Um, another component is understanding. You know, does the person understand the information that is being said to them? Do they understand it well enough to make a decision? Um, appreciation, you know, does the person accept that, you know, this is their diagnosis and that, you know, it is, you know, maybe degenerative and that it is going to get worse over time. Um, and also rationalization and reasoning, you know, um, can the person kind of weigh pros and cons of a certain treatment um, and things like that in order to make decisions? And I feel like, again, we assess these areas in depth a lot of times in our evaluations. And I feel like we can bring a lot of information to that conversation so that, um, you know, when the doctor does put that in the system, they have, you know, that information and that knowledge to make a good decision. Um, and so just, you know, as SLPs, I feel like, you know, we can explain how impaired language is not synonymous with impaired intellectual abilities. Um, and also just, you know, make sure that the person has access to adequate aids to assist with communication. So like I mentioned, like a low-tech board or a high-tech device. Um, so for example, right now I have a patient who, you know, very low language abilities after having a stroke. And um, he's very unreliable right now by nodding and shaking his head just to answer, you know, basic yes, no questions. However, when you put a basic communication board in front of him with the written words yes and no, his, you know, reliability significantly improves. And so I think that's really important, you know, again, to communicate that with everybody that's involved with working with this patient so that, you know, that they can make decisions, even if it's on the basic level, you know, they have that ability to do that. Um, there's one kind of comment in this material that I think really sticks out is bolded at the bottom. Um, it says decisional capacity should not be based on a diagnostic label, but a person's functional abilities. You know, just because somebody has had a stroke, they shouldn't be labeled as not being able to, you know, make decisions. It really needs to be based on their actual abilities and, you know, whether they have, um, you know, the ability to communicate the choice, the ability to understand and to reason, like I had mentioned before. Um, it's funny that Stephanie kind of mentioned health literacy in the last um, resource, but this is something that I thought about when I was making this resource as well. Um, there was actually a resource in the past that I made specifically on health literacy that talks about, you know, uh, individuals recall and understand approximately 50% of what healthcare providers explain to them. So again, you know, just us having that knowledge and understanding, just making sure that you know, other providers know how to best educate, you know, these patients and how best they understand the information um, to be able to make decisions.
Great, thank you. Yeah, and I think it depends on the setting as far as like, because ultimately the physician is the one to to determine decision-making capacity. Correct. And like in an inpatient rehab setting, you might have a physician who's able to be very present with the patient, get to know them, yes. see them every day. Whereas in a skilled nursing setting, assisted living, they may not see the doctor that much. And so these physicians have their own caseloads that they're trying to manage and they don't necessarily have the time to be doing the kind of work that we have the capacity to do. And it's, it's a little scary that like, we're all very, like, it's a thin line for any of us to lose our decision-making capacity rights, just as far Mm -hmm. as patients. And as soon as that gets entered into the medical record, it's hard to undo that. So I think the more that we offer to patients to make sure that that's being done correctly, the better. So thank you. And I think like one of the myths says, you know, decision-making capacity is not all or nothing. You know, it might be that I've seen in my patient's charts where, you know, they have the ability to consent to basic, you know, information or, um, you know, questions, however, more complex medical care, you know, they have the inability to consent to that. Okay. And then Steph, you wrote an article snapshot um, about this topic. Yes, I did. Yeah. Can you tell us some of the, or tell us what the paper was? So if people want to look it up. Yeah. um, So the paper, the paper was called, help me tell you what I want, decisional capacity, neurogenic speech and language impairments and the law in 2018. It was written by Cap and his colleagues. Um, this one that Jennifer actually shared with me as she was working on this, the material we just talked about, um, and just kind of highlighting that decisional capacity is the working and practical extra legal clinical judgment about a person's abilities to make autonomous choices about a specific matter during a particular time frame. Um, so I think, again, it just stresses the importance of Yes, maybe a person in acute care isn't able to make a decision based on what they're going through, but I think this is something that should be continuously evaluated by the team. It's not a one and done. So luckily, that's kind of how we practice in the hospital I work in, um, because, you know, the diagnosis change. um, Well, the diagnosis doesn't change, but their acuteness changes in their bodies. healing process to it can change. So um, we continuously evaluate this. And the speech therapist is a really important member um, of that team where I work. Um, Another highlight was a person's impaired language abilities is not synonymous with their intellectual impairment, which Jennifer kind of mentioned. Um, And then again, it talks about how the, the speech therapist is that crucial team member in determining how the patient best understand language and can help with those education to the other team members and the family on how to kind of incorporate communication supports to support that understanding of language and allow that patient to communicate what they're wanting. Um, The SLP can also advocate for assessment modifications to make things more aphasia friendly. Um, Little changes like Jennifer talked about, having a yes, no board or having just a couple pictures with some words Um, can really just make the difference. 
even just like writing the, what you're trying to say in simple language as you're saying it, those two together could support that person's understanding to better make a decision. Um, and then for a person who had a stroke, this decisional capacity will likely be, re be returned as that person continues to improve to therapy. So again, just reiterating, this is not a one and done. This is a evolving um, decision about their decisional capacity. Yeah. Great, thank you. And the next piece we're gonna talk about is saliva anatomy and function. And Stephanie, you wrote this piece, so go ahead and tell us about it. Yes, so I talk about saliva a lot with my patients who have Parkinson's, or I also have patients with Sjogren's syndrome. Um, and I thought it was just, I was Googling like images and trying to share them with my patients, and it was just hard. And I was like, this would be a great idea, and the, the subscribers wanted it too, so it made it happen. But what I like about this is the graphic is beautiful. I love the graphic and it has a great job of like where the location of these glands are. And then it then goes and breaks down because saliva, people don't realize you have like a watery saliva, but then you also have a thicker saliva and the com combination of those two can help with, you know, breaking down food. It's also related to your body's re like response. So that fight or flight and freeze that creates a different type of saliva. I believe that one is the, the mucus saliva. So the thicker one is when that fight or flight happens. So, you know, when you're getting anxious about something like, wow, my mouth is like really thick or I feel like I don't have saliva. Well, that's because that thicker mucus is coming in um, versus the serious or the watery saliva is that brain kind of regulating just when we're at rest, our digestive functions and all that. Um, so I'm not going to go through each of the glands because you can read it, but it's the sublingual glands, the submandibular glands, and the parotid glands. Um, and then it really does a good job of breaking down which type of saliva is produced, maybe how much. Um, the parotid glands, which are located in the back by the ear, which is about the size of an egg roughly, um, that one produces about 25% of the total saliva someone has just sitting at rest. Um, and the other two kind of kick in for other, other functions. Yeah. I did not realize that different glands produce different types of saliva. So that makes total sense where you can have one gland that's underproducing or overproducing mm -hmm. and that will manifest in different symptoms for different people. And I didn't even write it on the handout, but a lot of, I see a lot of people with head and neck cancer too, they were getting radiation. And so of course these glands are affected and saliva or lack of saliva, the xerostomia, the dry mouth um, is a very common um, thing they're talking about with me and how do we manage that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. And then you also wrote an article snapshot on this topic as well. I did. So since I'm on the Parkinson multidisciplinary clinic, we do talk about saliva and drooling a lot. And I just thought it would be interesting to learn more about it. So the, the article is drooling rating scales in Parkinson's disease, a systematic review. Um, it was done in 2021 by Nascimento. 
I'm going to say. I don't think I pronounced that right. Um, and their team. So some of the highlights is they were talking about how drooling is often one of the, the most bothersome non-motor symptoms for people with Parkinson's and how it has a ne negative a physical and that psychosocial impacts. My patients talk all the time about how they're embarrassed. They don't really want to socialize. They don't want to go out in public, go out to a meal um, because they don't want to constantly be wiping drool. Uh, patient reported outcome measures tools, um, PROMS, they are considered the gold standard for assessing the patient's experiences and their perspectives and how um, we should be using them in our clinical practice and research. The patient, I always say, you're the expert. You know you better than anybody. So tell me how we can help you. And so using these patient reported outcomes is something I'm doing a lot in my practice. Um, the radbound oral. Sorry, can I interrupt you, Steph? Oh, please. And ask a question. Yes. Okay. This feels like a, like an uninformed question for me, but I think a lot of people feel intimidated or overwhelmed by patient-reported outcome measures. It's like, okay, where do I find those? Do I have to subscribe to a journal to get access to them when they're published? And my, I guess I just assumed that like we can all create our own patient-reported outcome measures, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, it's just more of you asking questions and it's, it could, you could consider it like a motivational interview too. You're just asking questions and getting information from the patient. My understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't have to be standardized because every patient is unique. Every person's unique. So I don't know. I think it would be hard to have a standardized set of like patient reported outcomes, but standardized to the patient. So like if you're asking them on a scale of one to 10, mm -hmm. um, one being doesn't affect me at all. And 10 is like, I, I can't live my life because of this barrier. Like how much does drooling yeah. affect your life? And they yes. would, they would yeah. put it on a scale. And then you could ask that same question two weeks in or a month in or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you're moving, hopefully moving along that scale. So it's standardized to that person and you're able exactly. to changing, but I don't think it has to be something that's published or yeah, standardized to a whole group of people. We can all create our own patient reported outcome measurement mm -hmm. tools. And if anyone has any other information as you're listening to this, that we could share on that topic, that would be great. Cause it's something that I, I really like to use those and, and there are really good ones out there that have been published. So I don't want to mm -hmm. imply that those aren't out there, mm -hmm. but we can also create our own. So thanks for letting me jump in. Yeah, that's something I would love to do in the future is to kind of create some more patient reported outcome measures, like informal ones, just to kind of guide, you know, that beginning thought, but I don't want people to just say, well, these are the only questions I can ask. It's, it's a conversation. So um, it's in the back of my mind of things I'd like to do in the future. Um, some other ones that they talked about, the, the International Parkinson's Movement and Disorder Society in this article, Systematic Review, looked at the, the ones that are available and they found that the Radbound Oral Motor Inventory for Parkinson's disease um, was the only tool that kind of met their criteria for clinical use. Um, and it, this one is free for speech therapists to access. So that's good. And then um, that 
the rad bound um, does have three subsections that address speech, swallowing, and saliva. Um, it, it which then breaks down into like the physical frequency, how often are you drooling, and those psych psychosocial impacts. So, how do you feel when you have that drooling? Is it affecting your social relationships um, and whatnot? So, it just again opens that door to have this conversation with the patient and their family. Excellent, thank you. Okay, we'll move on to our fourth new resource. And this is all about space retrieval written by Jennifer. And I think she'll introduce it and we'll do a little bit of a role play so you can see how it works. Yes, yeah, so space retrieval is an evidence-based memory technique that I've used in cognitive rehab um, with my patients following brain injury. It's been more studied with individuals with dementia, but it can be used with others who have difficulty, you know, remembering information. Um, a lot of times I'm using this with my patients as they're kind of coming out of PTA, um, you know, trying to remember important information that they need to know while in the hospital to keep them safe. Um, and I'll kind of talk about some functional and meaningful um, targets that we can choose here in a minute. Um, so research has shown that individuals with kind of mild to moderate dementia have shown the ability to learn new information using this technique. Um, so it's kind of interesting. It uses something called procedural memory. So this is a type of memory where you can complete a task without really consciously thinking about it. So some um, tasks you might think about that you do that you don't really think about um, is like tying your shoes or riding a bike, um, feeding yourself. Um, you know, you're not really consciously thinking about all the actions that are involved in doing that. We just do it. And so it uses that type of memory to help um, these individuals learn new information that's, you know, functional for them. So like I mentioned, it's really important to always kind of pick, you know, functional and meaningful targets. So um, for these type of patients, thinking about compensatory strategies that you're wanting them to use, you know, that could be related to swallowing or it could be related to cognition, um, precautions, you know, did they just have a surgery and they need to follow, you know, hip precautions, um, steps for safely transferring from bed to wheelchair, wheelchair to bed, um, names of caregivers that are commonly around them. Um, and again, just kind of use of external aids. And so the steps to complete space retrieval um, is first kind of choosing that functional and meaningful target. Um, second is then asking a question to elicit a target response. So um, in just a minute, we are going to kind of role play using space retrieval. And my question is going to be um, kind of how do you keep yourself from coughing during meals? So this might be me working with a patient on remembering a specific swallowing strategy um, that they need to use to be safe during mealtime. And so it always recommends that, you know, you want the person to verbalize the response, but also add an action in with it if that is applicable. So um, for this one, that response might be, you know, take one single step and then having the patient take one single step. So say it and then also do that action. And so typically you start at kind of 15 second interval 
Um, if the person gets it correct, you double that time um, and then ask the question again and continue to double the time until they do not get it correct. Um, if they do not get it correct the first time, you'll try that 15 seconds again. If they do not get it um, right the second time after 15 seconds, you know, this might not be the best memory technique to use with them. Um, and so we'll just kind of um, give a little example of how this might be used um, using that target that I had just mentioned. So I'm going to get my timer out. All right, so I'm here working with Megan. Um, so Megan, we've been working on, you know, you're remembering um, how to be safe during meals. I know that you do not like coughing when you're drinking. And so how do you keep yourself safe or how do you keep yourself from coughing during meals? I don't know. So we've been working on taking one single sip. So what, what are we working on? Taking one single sip. Yes. Can you show me how you take one single sip from your drink? Good. All right. So just kind of on the back end, I am setting a timer for 15 seconds. And we're going to ask that question again at the end of that 15 seconds. Um, a lot of times I'm doing other things during this time interval, especially once it gets to a longer interval. Okay. Megan, how do you keep yourself from coughing during meals? Take one single sip. Yes, that's exactly right. Great job. All right, so I'm gonna increase the interval, double that time now. So we're gonna go to 30 seconds. And I'm starting that timer. So a lot of times, you know, we're working on other skills, even like alternating attention back and forth because, you know, you don't just wanna sit there and kind of stare at each other during this time frame. You can be working on other goals um, while every so often you're asking that question to elicit the response. Three seconds. Megan, how do you keep yourself from coughing during meals? I don't know. Take one single sip. One single how do you keep your? Yep, good. Good. So, and because she did not get that one correct, I would repeat that time interval. So, I would do 30 seconds again. And so then you just kind of continue that same um, order, whether you repeat the time interval or you double it if they get it correct. And Jennifer, if I, yeah. oh, sorry, I had not been taking a sip while doing it. If you're listening to the podcast, I was taking a sip while I was answering correctly. Would you cue the person to go ahead and do that? Yes, I would, because, you know, this is really about kind of pairing that action with the verbal response, too. It helps them kind of remember um, that information. And so I would cue the person to make sure they're pairing that action with that verbal response. Great. Have either of you used this at all in your treatment? I have, and it's it's really fun to see like immediate progress. I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> it works. It works. 
No, I haven't been using this at all. I feel like but I'm also an outpatient. So this would be a really good acute care thing, I think. Right, right. I agree. I was going to say, I feel like early on in the recovery, I use this more than the outpatient setting. Great. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move on to our last new resource this month, which is a deductive reasoning puzzle about a storage area. Stephanie wrote this piece. Yes, so these have been requested a lot, um, these kind of deductive reasoning puzzles. And before I kind of dive in, I, I know we were kind of having this discussion before about kind of the idea of worksheets, right? And I just read the INCOG 2.0 updated ones that were, were released um, last month. And for moderate to severe brain injury, um, they really aren't encouraging any like decontextualized um, tasks that like worksheets or like computer games or things like that for attention uh, or processing speed. Um, so. I know the worksheet is quite a debate in the speech therapy world, as it should be. You know, we all always should be kind of reevaluating what we're doing and why we're doing things. Um, for me, I do sometimes use deductive reasoning puzzles um, because I work with a lot of people who've had a brain injury or a stroke, and their main goal is I just want to get back to work. But it's hard because, you know, they're not working. I they don't really have an ability to kind of grab tasks that they're doing at that job. So sometimes I do go to these kind of deductive reasoning puzzles and really just kind of stress, okay, is this something you're interested in? If absolutely no, then you know what, we're going to do something different. But this is a way for me to kind of see those higher level executive function skills. And we talk about, you know, the point of this is not to get it right. Yes, it's great if we get it right. But the point is for you and I to kind of learn how you're processing through this now. And that's why I love deductive reasoning puzzles because it's, it is hard and you have to infer from the language. It's, the answers are not given to you. You have to use the information um, that you have in the table to kind of make the best guess. And unfortunately we, we can't replicate their work. So just kind of doing the best we can to use these skills within a, a speech therapy room. Um, so I personally really enjoy them and I have a lot of patients that do, but I also have patients who are like, yeah, I don't get it. It's not for me. So fully respect all of it. Um, yeah. And I'll hope, just jump in and say yeah, that please I, do. I used one of these the other day with a patient and they were on a new medicine regimen. And so they'd struggled with a lot of cognitive issues their whole life. And I, I, I'm sure there's like maybe some dyslexia learning differences in there as well, but they were on this new medicine regimen. And this is like, they asked specifically to work on deductive reasoning things and their job is definitely not something we could recreate in a therapy environment. And, um, the level of, confidence boost that I saw was really cool just in the sense that they kept saying like I never could have done anything like this before and so for them it, it was meaningful in that it's a complex cognitive task they couldn't do it before something has changed in their stay with their medicine and now they can and so that opens the door to talk about okay like what else has been challenging in your life 
that you could now possibly approach. And let's talk about those things. So always kind of bringing it back to the context of their life. And like you're saying, being really specific about why we're doing this. And I also will say that the pictures never match the solution. So that's something that has come up a few times where patients will say, oh, I thought I, I thought that's where that went because that's where it was in the picture. So I would recommend either folding it over so that they're not distracted by that or letting them know it, you know, it doesn't match. So, yeah, I was going to jump in and just say um, that I like that, you know, we have a variety of these now too, because I think that does help tailor it to the patient. So somebody who, you know, we have one about kind of garage storage, somebody who really enjoys working in their garage and working with their tools, you know, thinking about where the best place is to put them. And, you know, maybe the things that are on the bottom shelf are the things that you use most frequently. And also kind of coming back to maybe new impairments and how that's going to affect their ability to, you know, navigate their their garage. And so I think even though it might not be directly related to their work or something like that, it might be related to something that they enjoy and we can still kind of tailor it to some of those um, interests and hobbies. Yeah, I agree. And you're right. You can kind of piggyback on this and, and maybe they, they aren't interested in this task, but then maybe you can say, well, explain to me, how do you set up your X, Y, Z? And then it can become a language task and then kind of talking you through, well, I put my paint supplies up on the top shelf because I don't touch that very often. I don't have to paint too much. Um, So there's lots of ways to use this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also use this a lot for people who've had like a concussion or a brain injury and we're trying to practice the skills or, or knowing maybe when to take a break. Like if this is a lot of concentration and they're starting to get a headache, we talk a lot about the rule of two. So trying, if you're starting this at a one out of 10 for pain, and then you're doing this for a little bit, and now you're at a three out of 10 for pain. I want you to kind of advocate for yourself. Hey, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting to that two point. I need to take a break. And so I use this a lot for just practicing that skill too, of knowing not to push through when you need to take a break or crossing off clues and stuff like that to visually eliminate things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so practicing the strategy, practicing the strategies, you got it. And ultimately, do you want me to, t- um, I, sorry, go ahead. I was just like, do you want me to actually talk about this resource or is it was more of just kind of talking about how I would use it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's self-explanatory. I think people, that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But at the end of the day, at the end of the session, like just always checking in and making sure like, is this helpful for you? Like, is there, is there anything else that we can do that would be more functional Um, instead of just like, okay, I have 30 seconds to prepare and like, I know we're working on executive functioning skills. I'm just going to grab a deductive reasoning puzzle because it's mm-hmm. quick. I think just always step back and think about what's the most functional approach first, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. I always start my session and just have a couple options. And I first ask them like, what do you want to work on today? And then I have some ideas, but I always like to ask. And then we kind of go from there. Great. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to move on and wrap up with our case study. 
So like I said, this will be a chance for us to talk about different clinical perspectives and ideas, as well as resources that are in our library that have been in our library for a long time. So I'm going to read this out loud for anyone listening on the podcast. Our case study is about a 71-year-old female who had a stroke with dysphagia characterized by delayed swallow with trace aspiration present on video, but she hasn't developed any pneumonia since the stroke about nine days ago. Um, it was recommended to drink nectar-thick liquids by acute care SLP, um, but she's been going against this advice and is now on your caseload in inpatient rehab. So she had a stroke, she had a swallow study in acute care, and she's now moved to inpatient rehab and she's going against the advice of nectar-thick liquids. And I'll start with a resource that popped into my mind. This is one that I use a lot um, based on the work of John Ashford and many others at this point. And it's the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia. And I like this handout because it's very easy to read. We can talk about the three different factors of oral health and the presence of aspiration and the immune system status. And then we can talk about which one of those factors are in our control and which one is out of our control. And so if we can maintain good oral health for this patient and maintain a strong immune system, which may not be possible in the context of recovering from a stroke, then we would have no risk of developing aspiration pneumonia, even with the presence of aspiration. But this is just a good chance to be able to talk about all the different variables that go into that risk and facilitate patient decision, like informed decision-making about the, the level of risk that they want to take with their choices. And I think ultimately, like I always have an approach of it's like, it's whatever the patient wants. And the more that we can educate, the better. But I think there's a fine line too, between like over-educating and saying things like, okay, like it's your life, like do whatever you want <laughs> versus um, providing really solid, cohesive education and then stepping back and honoring their choice. Um, so yeah, that's the resource that I would choose for this case study. And I just threw this up here for anybody who's interested in learning more about those three pillars. This is the classic paper that everybody refers to by John Ashford. It's called Pneumonia Factors Beyond Aspiration. It's in Perspectives on Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, and it's available on AshaWire. So if you're an ASHA member, you should be able to access it as long as you're logged in. And Stephanie, what resource did you pick for this case study? I picked uh, a more recent res uh, resource we have to kind of determining that risk of aspiration. So this is more geared towards the speech therapist um, because I love the three pillars. I use that a lot too. But this one dives a little bit deeper in for the speech therapist to consider the person kind of as a whole. And again, I do think it matters whether or not you're an acute therapist, inpatient or outpatient therapist. Um, because you're going to be dealing with different things on this list. So it talks about medical conditions, the oral care, their activities of daily living, um, if, there, if there's kind of any tubes or anything, or a ventilation, kind of the bolus itself. Is it like a thicker liquid or acidic? Um, does that person take fast, fast eating with large bites? 
Um, and then just kind of considering the person's general health. And it's this yes and no, kind of you go through it. And if there's a yes, the person could have an increased risk. If there's a no, they have a decreased risk. So when I do swallow studies in outpatient, I, this is what I'm going through in my head to kind of see, well, if they're coming to me an outpatient, I'm seeing them aspirate, but I mean, they're living at home safely, their body's respiratory system is safely able to kind of protect itself. Their risk of aspiration is probably lower than someone I'm seeing in acute care who they can't really, they, cognitively that's affected because they're very acute. They can't maybe follow strategies as well. So I, I find this really helpful um, to kind of consider as a speech therapist. Yeah. Jennifer, do and you ever use this? Oh, she's muted. Oh. Oh, can you hear us, Jennifer? You're muted. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. There well, you go. Sorry about that. But I was just saying, um, yes, it's it's mainly in my head as a checklist. But yes, I, I frequently go through kind of all of these different areas to assess kind of risk of aspiration. Um and that's what I was thinking, kind of going back to the case study, you know, sometimes you want to know more information and, you know, how yeah. is their cough response is, are they mobile? I feel like all of that, you know, definitely goes into the decisions that you make. And so I think it's helpful to just see this and helpful for kind of new clinicians or students too. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to realize that even healthy adults, they, they have trace amounts of aspiration of food and liquids and saliva, but they, they're able to protect their, their airway because of how the respiratory system is built. Um, so it's just, we need to think about the big picture a little bit more instead of just, oh, they aspirated, let's, let's thicken their liquid. So. Yeah. And when you wrote this piece of stuff, I was like, is there like a score is like each one a, worth a point or something. And that's not how this resource works. And I think it, it's more like you're saying guiding clinical decision-making. And I think it's a really great resource for anyone who's new to documentation because mm -hmm. it has all of the kind of keywords that you mm -hmm. want to include uh, right there for you. Yeah, so. exactly. Put all your documentation to use and write in why you're recommending them to have thin liquids even though they're aspirating. You could say they they have good health, they're they're able, they're really active, they're mobile, they're able to do all these other things. And that's why I'm saying they're safe with drinking regular liquids. Yeah. Great. And I can't remember if I named this piece out loud, but for people listening on the podcast, this is called determining the risk of aspiration. And the last resource we have for you related to this case study is chosen by Jennifer, and it is called Oral Care and Aspiration Pneumonia. Yeah, so this is kind of an older resource, and this one's, I feel like, more kind of written for the patient. And so just kind of further explaining just the importance of oral care and how, you know, the risk of acquiring aspiration pneumonia is higher individuals with poor oral health. Um, again, just going over kind of some of the statistics behind that, um, as well as giving some information about signs of poor oral hygiene, um, such as, you know, pack, white patches on the tongue, dry chapped lips, bad breath. Um, so just kind of helps the person to, you know, reflect back on themselves and think about, you know, do I have any of those signs of poor oral health and what can I do to kind of 
improve that um, and specifically with this patient, you know, especially if they want to stay on the thin liquids. Great. All right. Okay, and then at the end of each episode, I'm going to let everybody know about resources that have been released into the library by other teams, including the OT team and the PT team. Um, so the OT team recently created a resource called Emergency Preparedness with the Disability. And it's a really great resource if you're working on functional problem solving um, as people go home. And so it talks about emergencies that you have at home, emergencies in the community and natural disasters, and then helps guide everybody through making an emergency plan, um, talking about any assistive devices that are needed, um, mobility impairments, cognitive impairments, things like that. And the OT team also came out with a handout all about growth mindset. And it just is a basic handout for patients who maybe are working with a fixed mindset where they're thinking, I can't do this. It's too hard. I give up. I'm making too many mistakes, that kind of mindset and talking about shifting towards a growth mindset where the thoughts are more circling around things like I'm still learning. I'll keep trying. This is going to take time and effort. I'll try a different way. Um, so definitely a great resource for uh, people with a brain injury. And the physical therapy team came out with a handout about frontotemporal dementia. So it talks about the basics, who it affects, and then the three different variants. So that could work well as the patient and family education handout. And you can find all of the resources that we talked about on this episode at therapyinsights.com. If you're an Access Pass subscriber and have the printables feature activated, you can go ahead and print any of those resources right away and use them in your sessions. If you're not a member, you can sign up at therapyinsights.com. Uh, we're going to have all of the links available in the show notes. So if you want to check out the show notes for the podcast or YouTube, you can find those pretty quickly. And we are taking requests for any questions you have for our team. Um, if you have a case that you want us to talk about, if you have a situation or a scenario where you want us to list the different resources that we would use in that situation, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. And we'll be back with a new episode dropping on April 1st with all of the new releases for April. Um, and so we will see you then. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. And thank you to all the therapists out there who are working to make therapy informed, empowered, and person-centered. So we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.